Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together again at the start of the year. And this morning's prayer is going to pick up on some of those themes that uh, Wayne has already covered in his prayer. Just looking forward to the year ahead. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we can come together once again today as church to worship you, to praise you, to hear your word preached and to enjoy fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father God, we pray for those who are not here with us today, especially those who are absent due to personal or family illness. We pray for your peace and your comfort for all who are struggling and that they may be free from spiritual, emotional and physical distress. Father God, we ask that prayers for healing will be answered as will prayers for your leading, guidance and direction. And we pray that each one of those who are struggling will sense your presence and your compassion. Father God, we pray for ourselves at the start of this year. We pray that each one of us will see you more clearly, know you more dearly and follow you more nearly as this year progresses. We pray for the spiritual growth for each of us and from that growth that we may be a good fruit for you. We pray for your encouragement and guiding that we may play our part in that growth and we pray for the increasing presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives and his empowerment. We pray for our church at the start of this year. We pray for more and more people to come to this church and especially new converts. We pray for your encouragement for each one of us to be alert to the Spirit's promptings about people we could invite to join us at church and that we don't ignore such promptings when they happen. We pray that we as individuals and as a fellowship can be warm and genuine and welcoming especially to visitors or newcomers to our church and encourage them to join and participate in our Christian family. We pray, Lord God, at the start of this year that you will show us where you are already active and working in our community so that we might join with you in that activity. Show us, Lord, we pray, where this church can meet a need. Show us, Lord, we pray, which fields that are ripe for harvest now, so that this church might go out and bring that harvest in. Please show us, Lord. Show us, Lord, where to reach out. Show us, we pray. And finally, Father, we repent of those things which have held us back in the past. Father, we acknowledge our need to change, to change any pessimism we may have into optimism, to change any disillusionment into belief and dynamism, to change cynicism into enthusiasm, to change disappointment into hope, to change procrastination into priority, to change the optional into the essential, to change the same old, same old into the new every morning, new every morning. Oh God, how great is your faithfulness. Open us all, we pray, to the direction, motivation and empowerment of your Holy Spirit in this year ahead. And we ask these things this morning in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Good morning. I hope you had a fantastic Happy New Year. Um, we spent a lot of time with the kids, as, as I guess we all do. And um, I'll tell you a funny story. It will settle me if I tell you a funny story first. Um, I was looking after Lily, my three-year-old granddaughter, and she was just into everything, up and down, here and there. And I said to her, Lily, have you got ants in your pants? And she looked really worried and she said, please check, Oma. <laughs> anyway, um, I hope you're having a really wonderful, happy new year. Um, there's an old song, a 60s song, uh, that, you, that, that those of you who are old enough might remember. It's called, To Know Him Is To Love Him. To Know, Know Him Is To Love, Love Him. Have you heard that song? And, and that's what it's like, I think, with God. And that's why today I've, um, I've named this message The Ways of God. Because I think the more that we find out about God and his ways, the more we will love him, the more we will understand him. Um, I've been greatly influenced over the years, way back to in the late 80s, by Selwyn Hughes and um, Packer, Knowing God, and C.S. Lewis. I've gathered lots of thoughts and ideas over the years, so today is a bit of a remembrance of all those ideas and thoughts and being put down on paper. So, the beautiful thing about knowing and understanding God is that once we begin to look at our circumstances and difficulties through this knowledge and understanding, life takes on a completely new perspective. It changes from boredom, emptiness, purposeless, to meaning, direction and hope. Jesus, of course is the best example of what it means to live life in the knowledge and understanding of the Father's ways. He was never in a hurry, was never worried or flustered, and he had an answer for every situation that confronted him. He was so familiar with his Father's ways that he quietly walked past the crowd of desperate people sitting by the pool of Bethesda and said to just one person, do you want to be made well? Why didn't he ask the same question of everyone? There were a great many people there needing his help. Why focus on one? It seems hard to understand until we see the connecting verses in the fifth book of the chapter of John, of John where Jesus says, My father has been working and I have been working. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. Jesus seems to be saying that he did not get his guidance from what was happening around him, but rather from what went on above him. Note the phrase, what he sees his father do. Jesus looked to heaven saw that his father's way in this situation was not to heal all, but to heal one. And then he moved to make his father's will a reality. The way of man would be to minister to the whole crowd. But God's way was to single out one individual and focus only on him. But why? Why? 
My daughter Sarah suggested that maybe this has something to do with leaving the 99 and finding the one. I don't know. We can speculate, but we don't really know. We can only conclude it was his way. Isaiah 55 verse 9 tells us, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Several several biblical passages show how some of man's ways are directly contrary to God's ways. For example, man thinks that leadership is getting others to serve us. But God says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Then again, man thinks to surrender his life to God is to lose it. God says otherwise, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Romans 11 verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his ways past finding out. The point Paul is making is that it is impossible for the human mind by its own ability to search out and understand the ways of God. It's not saying that we cannot understand them. It is saying that we cannot understand them by our own unaided reason. In fact, God has graciously let us know something of his ways through Scripture. And one of the main purposes of the Bible is to help us become familiar with the ways of God. So taking a look into the scriptures, we can learn much about our Father's ways. So we'll consider a few, a few ways, seven or eight ways. And the first one is this. It is the way of God to test before he entrusts. The Apostle Paul said, because he considered me faithful, appointing me into his service. If we want to do something great for God, then we must be willing to be tried and tested. And the testing is not so much that God will be convinced of our ability, but rather that we ourselves might become more refined and ready through the process. It's widely considered among theologians that there are five or six major areas of testing which God uses before he entrusts us with special responsibility in his kingdom. Time does not allow us to look at each one in depth, but I think it's important just to mention them. One, money. Two, how we use our time. Three, persistence. Four, control of the tongue. Five, forgiveness. Six, undisciplined desires. These are all areas of testing. When we find ourselves in any refinement process, Selwyn Hughes gives some really good advice. He says, we must never allow the desire for what can be to hinder us from living effectively in the what is. We must never allow the desire for what can be to hinder us from living effectively in the what is. There is another way of God which can be summed up in this phrase. He reveals, reverses, and then restores. First God reveals his purpose, then after a while proceeds to reverse it so that it looks like on the surface of things that he has abandoned his original intention or just changed his mind. Then at the appointed time 
he brings the original purpose to pass in an unmistakably supernatural manner. This is a biblical truth that can be traced all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we see it clearly illustrated, for example, in the life of the patriarch Abraham. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Abraham had no doubt that he had, God had spoken to him. And by faith, he set out on, on a journey to an unknown destination. Later, the revelation God had given him that he would become the father of a great nation appeared to go into reverse when it became obvious that Sarah, his wife, was barren. Naturally, Abraham was puzzled. He he reminded God that despite the divine promise, he still had no child, at which God reaffirmed that from Abraham's body would come a nation that would be more in number than the stars in the sky. But despite this repeated promise, however, Sarah passed the age of childbearing so that, humanly speaking, it looked like God had left things too late. God's revealed purpose seemed to have gone so far in reverse that it could never be restored. But that's precisely how God likes to do things. It is his way to let things go until they look as if there is no way they can be turned around. And then he miraculously steps in to make his purposes come to pass. We see the same principle illustrated in the life of Joseph. When Joseph was a young man, God revealed to him in a dream that he would play an important part in the plans and purposes of God. But not long after the revelation was given, it suddenly went into reverse when he was sold by his brothers as a slave to the traders on their way to Egypt, and he finished up in Potiphar's house. I wonder what Joseph thought to himself during those dark and difficult days as a slave in Egypt. Did he think about his dreams and question the reality of God's message to his heart? Whether he did or he did not, we will never know. But one thing is certain. The revelation that seemed to go significantly into reverse was at God's appointed time miraculously restored. When Jesus was here on earth, he began his ministry by announcing the news that he was in the world to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Matthew puts it like this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. A large number of people responded to that message and at one stage so expectant was the vibe surrounding the Son of God that some of his disciples began to argue about who would sit at his side in the kingdom. It seemed to to the disciples that Jesus was going to oust the Roman Empire and become king of Israel. But at the end of the three-and-a-half-year period of ministry, the revelation of coming kingdom suddenly went into the reverse. The saviour was brought before his captors and treated like a common criminal. Simon Peter thought this was the end. The things that Christ had said about the coming kingdom appeared to be nothing more than a dream. The revelation Christ had given concerning the kingdom of God seemed to be at a point it could never be restored. Whoever survived a crucifixion, But three days after his death on the cross, God miraculously raised him from the dead and restored to the disheartened Peter as well as the other disciples the truth that had first captivated their hearts. 
Not all of God's ways follow this pattern of reveal, reverse and restore, but the major ones do. This is certainly the view of great Christian leaders when you read their biographies or the histories of famous Christian movements. I have heard Selwyn Hughes talk about the Waverley Abbey House. I've heard Joel Osteen talk about the compact stadium and both had such similar stories where God showed them these premises and then everything went into reverse and then all of a sudden everything went right again and they got their properties. Why does God adopt these strange and mysterious ways of working? There appears to be no other way that he can bring about his purposes. Would it be fair to say that when God reveals something to us, he knows that at that moment of some fresh revelation concerning his will for us, we have within us a combination of godly concerns and human perspectives. We are eager and full of natural enthusiasm. But a moment must come when our natural enthusiasm is surrendered to godly perspectives. How does God achieve this? Well, he allows us to go ahead in the strength of our own eagerness and then at the appropriate moment he changes gear and puts things into reverse. When we come to this point, we realise that if the revelation that God has given us is to be realised, it will not be because of our strength and power, but his. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And when we come to understand this, then God miraculously intervenes to restore his purposes. The fact that things are restored miraculously is always a constant reminder that God must always have the biggest part in any project. In that way, no onlooker can be in any doubt as to who is responsible for the success. Everyone recognises it to be God. So we see the way of God is to reveal, reverse, and then restore. Another way of God's, another of God's ways is to place us in, a, in situations where everything seems to go wrong. You would think that if God loved us as much as he says he does, he would lead us not into troublesome situations, but away from them. As you would be aware, difficulties have an uncanny way of all coming together. We cry out, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why does he fail to answer my prayers? Why doesn't he deliver me from these dark and difficult experiences? I told my husband before this morning, I said I'll be preaching to myself this morning, Mike. It may appear on the surface of things that God has lost control, but nothing could be further from the truth because God never loses control of anything. If we could see the depths of God's heart, we would see a purpose being worked out that would more than compensate for our feelings of uncertainty and doubt. We see things from our point of view. He sees things from his Peace comes when we change our perspectives to his. God's way is to focus more on the development of our character than on the development of our happiness. Life is not about the pursuit of happiness, but growth in character and spiritual development. 
the Bible tells us in James 1 verse 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And Paul tells us in Romans that we have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son. If the chief goal which God has for us is the development of our character, then it's obvious that he must place or allow us to be placed in situations that are hard enough for us to sharpen our souls on. But while we are in these challenging and trying situations, we find encouragement in the words of Isaiah 40, 31. You know these well. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There's something really interesting about the eagle. If an eagle's wings are set on a downward tilt when a storm strikes, it'll be dashed to pieces. But if its wings are tilted upward, it will rise through and above the storm. The angle of the wings decides defeat or victory. Knowing and understanding what God is about when we are placed in dark and difficult situations enables us to tilt our wings, so to speak, in the right direction. When things are falling apart and nothing seems to be going right, we tilt our wings upward and homeward and say, Lord, I know you are working through this situation. You are going to make me more like Jesus than I have ever been before. Therefore, I will rise with you to see the whole thing from your point of view. If we can do this, instead, Instead of being dashed to the ground in bitterness and confusion, we will soar into the heavens with Jesus and come out in quiet victory and greater usefulness. Another way of God can be best seen by comparing two different passages of Scripture. In the book of Exodus, God tells the children of Israel that when the time comes for them to enter the promised land, they will overcome their enemies little by little. However, in Deuteronomy 9 verse 3, he says, you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. Is this a divine contradiction? No. In reading further, we see that some enemies would be overcome slowly, taking years while others would fall quickly and be conquered in a day. These two apparently opposing texts reveal another intriguing aspect about God's ways. He purposes that we overcome some problems quickly, while others take a considerable length of time. Dr. Lawrence Crabb calls this the principle of slow growth. The children of Israel entering the promised land is a picture of the Christian life. Although we move into all that God has for us, all that he has promised us, we still find there are problems. And some of these problems are overcome slowly, while others are overcome quickly. Knowing part of God's purposes in this makes all the difference between worry and anxiety and peace. The big problems facing Israel's entrance into the promised land were overcome quickly, 
while the smaller ones took a considerable time to resolve. Is there a principle here that we can bring into everyday Christian living? Looking at it from a human perspective, you would think it ought to be the smaller problems that should be overcome quickly, while the bigger ones take much longer. But it is not God's way. Here's the thought. Maybe quick and sudden victories come only after we have wrestled for some time with smaller or lesser issues. Take, for example, David's victory over Goliath. Over the years, David had built up his skills in dealing with problems that came to him in the role of the shepherd. And so when it came to facing the greater challenge, being Goliath, he was ready for a quick and sudden victory. What possible reason could God have in planning to drive out some enemies slowly and others quickly? Looking again at the Israelites, the answer can be found in Exodus 23. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. If God had cleared the promised land of all its occupants prior to Israel taking possession, the task of controlling it would have been too much for them. He therefore used the existing occupants to advance the purposes of his own people. Once we understand this principle that God never acts randomly but always on purpose, then we have a big key to understanding his ways. Had Israel taken possession of the land of Canaan without a struggle, they would have become proud, independent and self-reliant. God saw to it that they had enough resistance to keep them dependent on him. They advanced slowly but in a way that worked out to their best advantage. It would be helpful to keep this in mind the next time we question why we still struggle with issues that we had hoped by now to have put behind us. While we struggle over the smaller issues now, our spiritual muscles are being built up. And though we may not be aware of it, we are being prepared for greater victories that lie ahead. Another way of God is the habit that our Heavenly Father has of appearing to withhold from us the very things which we know are within the perfect scope of his will. Sometimes it looks as if on one hand God calls us to ask him for spiritual blessings and with the other he holds them from us. Why is it that some Christians seem to get their prayers answered and others do not? Maybe God has favourites and he likes some Christians better than others. Well, that can't be right. The Bible tells us God shows no favouritism. When God appears to be withholding a blessing from us, it is never because he is not ready to give it, but could it be that we are not ready to receive it? To understand this strange and mysterious way of God, it would be helpful to ask ourselves a basic question. Do I really believe God delights to give good things to his children? Do I really believe he is eager to give? It's very important to have a clear understanding of the large-heartedness that exists in God because any doubt about this issue can sabotage, sabotage our whole approach to prayer. If we are not 
absolutely sure that God is eager and willing to give, then we will not be able to approach him with absolute confidence. And this in turn will affect our feelings about him, our spiritual expectancy and our ability to receive. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Jesus told us that God is both a loving father and a concerned friend. There's no doubt about it. God loves nothing better than to give good gifts to his children. Jesus put it, puts it like this. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? What gives an earthly father more delight than to be able to give his child something he knows will be good for it and it, that it brings its endless joy? It's the same with our Heavenly Father, only a million times more. We may ask if God is such a joyous giver. Why is it that so often we ask but we do not receive? The answer lies in the words of Jesus as recorded in Luke 11 verse 9. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It appears there are three levels of spiritual longing, asking, seeking, and knocking. The ability to receive from God is not determined by the prayers of our lips alone, but by the depth and degree of spiritual desire that resides in our hearts. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search me for me with all of your heart. When we ask and do not receive, we may need to look within ourselves to see whether the desire of our hearts matches the words that we pray. If not, may we be encouraged to do more than ask, but seek and knock as well. Could this process be our Heavenly Father's way of making sure that we learn to take things not for granted, to make us more aware of our dependence on him? Another intriguing characteristic of our Heavenly Father is the way he has of revealing himself through the most ordinary means and unexpected places. Remember Jacob? He dreamed a dream. He saw a ladder reaching from the ground up into heaven. And in the dream, God spoke to him just as he had spoken to his father Isaac before. It was a gracious, forgiving, personal, promissory word. When Jacob woke up with a great sense of awe, he cried and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. God constantly seeks to meet us in the common and unexpected places of life. He does not wait for what we call grand moments, but turns the ordinary and the commonplace into the grand. In the common moments of the day, God is there. Don't search afar. Look for him in the ordinary ways of life. There is an old legend of an angel who came one evening to the brink of a river and asked the boatman to ferry him to the other side. When they reached the farther shore, the angel rewarded the boatman with what appeared to be a handful of wood shavings and in disgust the boatman threw them into the river. The next morning, he found one of those shavings left in the bottom of his boat. 
and on examining it closely, found it was not a shaving of wood, but a shaving of gold. The ordinary moments of life pass quickly. Don't see them as worthless shavings. Look at them more closely and you will see that they are solid gold. What else can we learn about our Heavenly Father's strange but wonderful ways? This, it's his way to finish and perfect everything in its time. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. This scripture is part of a chorus line which Christians have sung for many, many years. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you will do just what you say in your time. What needless suffering and anxiety we carry within us when we fail to understand that although God dwells in eternity, he is working out his purposes here on earth in accordance with time. A wise man once said, the greatest lesson we can learn from life is that God is never in a hurry. We will save ourselves a great deal of personal pain and irritation when we learn to have patience with the patience of God. An example of how slow and unhurried God is in working out his purposes can be seen in Christ's first coming. The promises that one day God would send someone to overturn the effects of the fall were given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This promise was later restated in many ways through the prophets, the patriarchs, through the tabernacle and temple sacrifices and so on. Century after century went by and still no Messiah. Give us the Christ, cried the nation of Israel, as they saw the stones of their beloved Jerusalem overturned. But century after century came and still no Messiah. Then when it looked as if God had forgotten his promise and no prophet had spoken in Israel for 400 years, the heavens responded and a word was spoken, Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. How much we miss when we don't see and sense God's timing in our earthly affairs. The picture that we now see as we look at our lives may not be very beautiful, but we see it through his eyes. But when we see it through his eyes, in his time, the picture takes on a new perspective that's just out of this world. We can see purpose in tragedy, reason in calamity, and meaning in everything. No matter what our circumstances are like at the moment, we should never, never, never lose hope. God is still in charge. Romans 8 shows us that all things are good as they work together for God's purposes. It is the Father's way to finish and perfect everything he begins His promise stands and he will make all things beautiful in his time. Our problem is that we get our attention focused on the wrong things. We see a strange-looking cocoon. God sees a butterfly. We see the ugly strands. God sees the finished design. We see today. He sees tomorrow. Without God, life is pointless and purposeless. With him, it will ultimately make sense. The last way of 
of God worth considering, and this is my favourite, is found in Isaiah 42 verse 8. My glory I will not give to another. This way of God is insisting that all glory must be given to himself. This used to trouble me greatly because we don't tend to warm to people who, having been involved in some achievement, want all the limelight for themselves and are unwilling to share the credit with others who've also had some part to play in it. But we need to understand why God insists on getting all the glory for himself. C.S. Lewis says he used to find it difficult to understand why God insisted on being continually honoured and praised. So why does God insist on taking all the honour and glory to himself? Firstly, because he has a right to it. Can, Can anyone deny him that? The God who created this universe is a great and mighty creator. The fact that he has made it as large as it is points to the greatness of his mind and the greatness of his power in bringing it into being. Everything we have, breath, life, reason and so on, we have received from him. How can we give glory to another? I have come to understand that the more we give God the glory, the more we complete ourselves Not to appreciate something that deserves to be appreciated results in some loss to me. In failing to honour God as God, I do not just deprive him, I also deprive myself. C.S. Lewis articulates this thought really effectively when he says, He, God, is that object to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate, which is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost all. He goes on to say, the lives of those who are tone deaf have never been in love, never known true friendship, never cared for good books, never enjoyed the feeling of the morning air, are somewhat incomplete. And these deficiencies are a faint reflection of a life in which there is no attempt to live for the glory of God. Once we see the reason that God insists on giving us him or giving on us giving him the glory is not that we might gratify some appetite in him, but rather that we might become more whole and complete, then never again will we want to hold back from giving him what he asks. Another reason why God insists on giving him the glory, because in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Selwyn Hughes writes, If we could perfectly ascribe glory to someone or something, that is to utterly express or get out out the upsurge of appreciation that rises within us, then indeed the object would be fully appreciated and honoured. And in the giving of that honour, our own delight would attain perfect development and the worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. Richard Sullivan knew I was going to talk about this and he loaned me a book, John Piper, the book Desiring God. It really blessed me. Uh, John Piper says, in, in he mentions the difficulty in this book that C.S. Lewis had with the demands scattered throughout the Psalms that he should praise God. 
He did not see the point in this. It seemed to be to be a picture of God as craving for our worship, like a vain woman who wants compliments. He goes on to say why he was wrong. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval or giving honour. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers praise their favourite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favourite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Lewis helped Piper to see that his old effort to achieve worship with no self-interest in it proved to be a contradiction in terms. Piper concluded God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but an expression of joy. Not to enjoy God is to dishonour him. To say that something else satisfies you more is the opposite of worship. Our glorifying of the Lord here on earth is but a trickle compared to the full flood that will flow out of us when we see him face to face. So this morning we began by saying that without a knowledge of our Father's ways, we can soon find ourselves beset by worry, fear and frustration. We've only had time to touch on a few of the Father's characteristics. He has many others. So let's just summarise the ones we've touched on today. So it's God's way to test before he entrusts, to reveal, reverse and then restore to place us in situations where everything seems to go wrong, to arrange for some problems to overcome slowly but others to be overcome quickly, to withhold from us the very things he encourages us to pray for, to reveal himself in the most ordinary ways and in the most unexpected places, to finish and perfect everything he begins and to insist on having all the glory for himself. Knowing and understanding these ways when we come up against a way of God that seems strange and mysterious, we will be able to relax and say to ourselves, I know enough about my Father to realise that when I cannot see or understand the reason for his actions, he is pursuing a way that makes perfect sense. Thank you, Willie. Um, really enjoyed that message. It's kind of interesting. It, it's not difficult to um, come to know God, to actually invite him into our life, um, but yet it's so easy to be perplexed as we sort of go on our walk and try and understand the timing of God and the way that he works. So, Willie, thank you for sharing those principles that give us great understanding. 
one more song. Yes, there is Don't Worry. Yeah, I haven't forgotten about it. So, yeah, but really appreciated that. Hopefully uh, each of us can uh, walk away with a, a greater understanding of how we can just interpret the way God's work in our lives and in the world. And we, we're just going to finish the service today through singing one more song and then uh, we're free to just uh, mingle afterwards as well. But please um, stand for one more time. We've got a, another great song and video to sing to. Thank you. That's a, a wonderful way to, to close the service today. Uh, trust that you've uh, experienced the, the touch of the Holy Spirit in this place today. Just God bless you all as you go into your week and look forward to seeing you again uh, next week. Yeah, thanks.